the hearts of the people who hear the gospel. Kids, you're dismissed for our children's church. <clears throat> and let's take our Bibles. We will turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 11 through 16. Through the entire book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, we've seen Timothy being told by Paul how to face the struggles of ministry. He faced things like false teachers. He faced troublemakers and critics within the church. He faced the temptation of greed. He faced many struggles. So Timothy is now being told to pretty much buck up and continue in service because let me tell you, ministry can be draining. If you've served in leadership and if you've served in ministry, you understand that. But there's a responsibility that those who serve Christ have to stand strong. We need to see steadfastness in serving God, no matter what you're called to, no matter what area you're serving in, you have to be steadfast. And that's what Paul begins his closing of 1 Timothy 6 with, right there in the 11th verse. He's giving a charge to Timothy, but we don't want to just see this as a historical charge to a person who was serving in the church at Ephesus. We want to draw from this applications for our own lives. There are those times in church life where you're going to feel set upon, where you're going to feel hurt, discouraged, frustrated. All of those things will come at some point in your spiritual journey. And the question we must ask is this, what do I do when those feelings come? How do I face those trials, those difficulties? That's what we find here in this text. First, we want to see that we need to faithfully serve God. Understand this. When you serve in the church, you're not serving the church. You're serving God, ultimately. And our faithfulness has to be directed toward God and God first. If it becomes about us and holding on to a ministry that we're in, if it becomes even about just the church, we fall short. Our service is directed toward God. And that, in and of itself, should drive us to serving Him. But then, Paul begins to share with Timothy some of the things that can derail us, the things that we need to flee from. And that's what he shares in the 11th verse. Look at what it says. But you, man of God, flee from all this. Now, first of all, notice how Paul addresses Timothy. He addresses him as man of God. You know, this word is only used twice in the New Testament, and both of them are in the letters to Timothy. Man of God was often an Old Testament term, and it would describe some of the leaders of Israel, some of the people who took a stand when no one else would. And I believe that Paul is calling Timothy to remember, to reflect on those faithful servants of God. Let me tell you, when you feel discouraged or discontented, it helps to read the biographies of those who have faced the struggle and stood firm. 
And when you look in the Old Testament, you can see that again and again and again with all of their failures, with all of their struggles. There were so many who stood firm. If you want a nice recap of that, read Hebrews chapter 11. The great example of people who stood the test, who were steadfast. But here, what Paul is telling Timothy is that this isn't a one-time fleeing We don't look at the things that we need to go away from and just make that decision one time to go away from them. Guess what? You have to keep fleeing. As a matter of fact, in the original language, the way this is framed, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Keep fleeing from all this. I wish that so many things in our Christian life could be a one-and-done decision, don't you? Wouldn't it be so much easier if we made a decision once and then that's behind us, we need never make it again? Few things in life are like that. The decisions that we make are decisions that we have to make continuously, and we have to keep making them. There has to be consistency and faithfulness developed in us by having to face the same decisions again and again and again. So what Paul is telling Timothy right here in this passage is, you keep fleeing from all of this. Now, to what does all of this refer? When we look through 1 Timothy, we find many struggles, many difficulties that Timothy had to face. He had to face people who were confusing the doctrine of God's grace and his gospel. He had to face people who were confused about worship and who were trying to make worship something that it wasn't. He had to contend with coming alongside overseers and deacons. Timothy had the responsibility of continuing and staying steadfast again and again and again. He had issues concerning people who needed to be ministered to, like widows, and that always weighed on him. And then he had issues with people who were coming in who were greedy, basically looking for power or for money, and they were there hurting the church body. Timothy could have easily become tired. He could have easily said, it's time to check out. But what Paul was telling him in this passage is, you remain faithful. You flee from those things that can derail your ministry. You flee from the things that can bog you down and entrap you. You know, if you're walking along in a country where there has been a war zone and you see a place that's fenced off that says minefield, you don't go into the minefield and dance around. You go in another direction. So really, that's what Paul is telling Timothy right here. Stay out of the land minefield. Stay away from these things. Flee in the other direction. But then he tells him something else. There are virtues that we as believers need to pursue. And that's what he begins to share as we go on in this 11th verse. Where we are to flee from the things that can derail us, we are to continually pursue these virtues that he begins to share with us right here in this text. So let's look at some of these virtues. The first virtue that Paul mentions is righteousness. If I'm to flee from unrighteousness, I'm to flee toward righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness, very simply, 
is doing the right thing. And who determines what the right thing is? God. Let me tell you, if I try to determine the right thing, you know what I do? My sin nature kicks in, and I start to justify things that I know deep down are wrong. But I'm going to try to explain it away, and I'm going to try to spin it so that I get advantage. I have to go to an objective truth, and that objective truth is God's Word. God's Word tells us what is right. We need to have a consistency in living out what God says. That's righteousness. We're to pursue that. We're to run toward that. Next, godliness. Now, godliness is something that we've seen a couple of times mentioned in the book of 1 Timothy. We see that godliness with contentment is great gain. We understand that godliness is an important part of our lives, that godliness basically is that outward evidence of what God's doing inside. Godliness isn't something that we try to put up a smokescreen and make people think that we're something when we're not. True godliness is living out the Christian life, that transformation that God is making within us. Godliness is letting what's inside outside, assuming that what's inside is God's transformation, change within us. God wants us to be godly. And being godly means that I don't go and toot my own horn about how godly I am, and by the way, how ungodly you are, so that by comparison, I'll appear even more godly. Godliness is coming and saying, I'm going to let my life speak for itself. It's not from the book of hesitations, which says, tootest thou not thine own horn, and the same shalt not be tooted. It's the idea that I live it out, people see it. I live godliness because that's what God has done in me. Look at the next one, faith. Faith is a life that trusts God and depends on Him rather than ourselves or something else. Now, in the immediate context, Paul had talked about contentment and he had talked about greed. Greed is a lifestyle that is the antithesis, the opposite of faith. Greed puts its trust in things that can be seen or handled, and it wants to accumulate more. Faith looks at God and says, I will trust God for who he is. I will trust God, and my dependence will be directed toward him. God wants us to be people of faith. We also find love. Now, love is the defining characteristic of disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said this, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, it's vital for spiritual leaders to not only have godliness and righteousness and faith, It's vital for leaders to act out of love. If you don't have love for the people that you serve, then it's going to wax old, and you're going to become frustrated, and ministry will become a drudgery rather than something that is inspiring to you and to others. God wants us to be loving people, and no matter what capacity we serve in, We should be loving one another. Next, we have endurance. Endurance very simply means keeping on, keeping on. 
It's also translated in some Bibles as patience. And it has the idea of bearing up under difficult circumstances. I don't care who you are or what church you'll attend. There are difficulties. Great difficulties. The Word of God tells us that we face struggles and trials for a particular purpose. And that purpose is to develop our faith and our faithfulness. God wants us to be people who endure. And it means that I refuse to cut and run when things get tough. You know what I find so often in Scripture and in life? The people who check out early miss out on God's blessing. When they tough it out, when they stand strong, they see God come shining through, and they grow, and they learn, and they experience the blessing of God's work in their lives. We want to be people who endure. And then look at the last one in this list. The last one in the list is basically this. We are to have gentleness. Now, gentleness, it's also translated meekness in some of your versions. And it's the final virtue that's mentioned. It has the idea of humble, kind treatment of one another. It's the opposite of the vices that focus on self. It's a virtue that focuses on others. We need to really understand that it's vital that we're not like a bull in a china shop when we interact with other people. People are those who are created after the image of God. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I need to treat them with gentleness, humility, decency. This is what God wants of the man of God. So if you want to be a man or a woman of God, these are the virtues that you pursue. These are the things that you should be living. God wants to see them developed in you and in me. But then it goes on. As we come to the 12th verse, we find that there's a part of us that requires some tenacity as well. These are the virtues we're to pursue, but we need to follow through in living out our calling. Understand this. God has a unique place for you in this church. Have you ever thought about that? You have a calling. You are brought here to minister to others, not just to be ministered to. And following through with that, living out that calling, requires some commitment on our part. Many in our culture view their relationship with God as something to be based on convenience rather than commitment. While it's convenient, I'll do this. But if it's not convenient, forget it. There is a commitment that we need to make that requires something of us if we're going to be faithful in serving God. And I believe that that's what Paul begins to share with Timothy here in the 12th verse. Notice what he says first. Fight the good fight of the faith. Fight the good fight of the faith. Now, now wait a minute. Didn't he just say that gentleness was one of the requirements, one of the virtues that we're to pursue. How can you be gentle and fight the good fight? Here's how. Fighting the good fight means that 
we prepare ourselves for a series of spiritual battles, and we fight with tenacity. As Satan tries to defeat us and discourage us, fighting the good fight means I focus on the faith and I will stand firm on what God's Word teaches. That's fighting the fight of the faith. It's hanging in there. It's taking everything that Satan has to hit you with and still standing. That's how we stand firm in the faith. Paul wrote this to the Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Fighting the good fight means I draw upon the resources that God has given me, and as Satan seeks to oppose me, I fight the good fight using what God has given me, and I keep on keeping on in that fight. We need to understand that fighting the good fight is a continual thing. Again, not a one-and-done thing. Satan doesn't hit us and then say, oh, wow, you know, he's kind of reeling from that blow. Maybe I better back off a little bit. What does Satan do? He hits us, and while we're still reeling, he hits us again and again and again repeatedly. Fighting the good fight means I will stand firm in the strength of the Lord and in what he's provided me. And what has he provided us? Look at the last part of that sixth chapter of Ephesians when you get home and see the full armor of God. Wonderful teaching and truths there about how we can stand firm and fight that good fight. And then Paul says something really unique. There in the 12th verse, after he says, fight the good fight of the faith, he says this, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, what in the world does he mean by take hold of the eternal life to which we were called? Here's something we need to understand. Positionally, when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are seated at the right hand of God with Jesus Christ. That's how God views us. And we know that because that's what he tells us in his word. It says, you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So we were included in Christ when we heard the word of truth, the gospel, and believed. But then he goes on to say this in the 18th verse. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power to us who believe. So you know what that's saying? Because I am in Christ, God has given me Tremendous resources. His power has been given to me. And that's not just something that happens later. 
That's something that is available to us now. It goes on to say this, that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Two aspects. One, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The scripture says we are seated there with Christ. But also it tells us this, that power that it took to seat Christ, resurrect him and seat him at the right hand of God, that same resurrection power is available to us. So laying hold of the eternal life to which we were called means I start to appropriate in my life the power that God has given me. I trust by faith that when God says he can empower me to walk the walk, that he will do so. It is a dependence on God, not self. That's how we lay hold of the eternal life to which we've been called. We appropriate the transforming power of what God has done in us, and we live it out. As believers, so often we fall short because we go to our own resources or the resources of our favorite book and we leave the Word and we leave God and we try to do it on our own. We try to go it alone and we fail miserably. That's not taking hold of the eternal life to which God has called you. Taking hold of it means I'm hanging on to what God has already given me in Christ Jesus. And I am counting on that to help me fight the good fight. This is what God wants to see in Timothy's life. But let me expand that. That's what God wants to see in all of our lives. We are to be people who live in this manner. Finally, as a man of God, we find that Paul is telling Timothy, finish well. Because it's God that we serve. Look at verse 13. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who testified before Pontius Pilate and made the confession. Now here's what he's saying. In light of these, God and Jesus Christ, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is probably one of the strongest charges that Paul gives Timothy in this entire letter. And look who he's calling as witnesses and who we're accountable to in keeping the charge that he gives. First of all, in the sight of God, the one who gave life and gives life to everything. I am to flee from the things that derail me I am to run toward the virtues. I am to fight the good fight. I am to take hold of the eternal life that God has given me. And all of this is in light of who God is and who Jesus is. And more than that, look at how he mentions Jesus in this text. He describes Jesus as the one who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made a good confession. He is our example. As Jesus faced the cross, he not only faced the physical torment of being beaten 
scourged and the torment that would come with being nailed to a cross. Much more than the physical torment was the spiritual torment of the sinless one taking upon himself the sin of the world. When Jesus made the good confession before Pontius Pilate, he didn't back away from who he was and what he had come to do. He made the good confession. So what I believe Paul is calling Timothy to do is to remember his Lord, to remember his Savior. And as he faced the struggles and the challenges of this life, to put it into perspective, anything that we face here and now can't even begin to compare with what Jesus faced as he faced the cross. You know, that's a perspective builder that I found helpful for me. About the time I start to whine and say, oh, life's getting difficult, you know, I'm reminded of what Jesus did for me. Huge perspective builder. And by the way, I don't mean to minimize the pain that we as believers can go through in this life. There are trials and struggles that rock us but we can turn to Jesus in those times. Our high priest who understands the struggles that we face and enables us to continue. And our faithfulness is viewed by the perfect witness, the one who lives so faithfully. So here is God, here is Jesus, and we're being charged before them we're accountable to them to do what? To keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, our faithfulness has no bounds. We're not to say, you know, I've been faithful for five years now, and it's time to throw in the towel. I'm tired, I'm done. When do we stop? Either when we die or when Christ appears. That's the idea. We endure. We keep on keeping on until the very end. And listen, the reason we're to do that is we represent Jesus Christ. We're to do it without spot or blame because our testimony of faithfulness affects people around us. For believers, it encourages them to keep on keeping on as well. One of my greatest blessings as a pastor is being with those who suffer quietly. Many in the church don't even know what they've gone through or what they're going through. They keep it quiet between them and the Lord, but they might share it with the pastor. And you'd have no idea what people go through the difficulty that they face, and they do it as a testimony to Jesus Christ. Do they become weary and discouraged at times? But before they share their weariness or discouragement, they remember, I represent Jesus Christ. I want to represent him well. Paul told this to the Philippian church, do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure 
children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. As we keep what God has given us to do, as we endure, we shine like stars in the universe. And one of the great things about going out in the country, and we noticed this when we went out for our men's retreat this year to Camp Friedenswald, is getting outside and looking up where there's no light pollution. You know, something we have here in Chicagoland, you know, bazillion street lights, right? So you get out where it's dark and there's no light pollution and you look up at the sky and you see those shining stars and you see just thousandfold more stars than you see here. And they shine in the dark background. God wants us to be like those shining stars. He wants us to be people without spot or without blame because we represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that until his appearing, which God will bring about in his own time. Finally, we want to focus on who we serve, the sovereign, holy God. You know, the more we focus on who God is and how he's described in Scripture, the easier it becomes to endure during those difficult times. If we focus on the difficult times, God becomes smaller. If we focus on God, those difficulties become smaller. We need to remember who it is that we're to focus on. So look at how God describes himself under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First of all, he is God, the blessed and only ruler. Do you catch what God's word is telling us? God is in control, in charge. There's only one ruler, and that is God. There are many people who try to usurp the rule of God, but in the final analysis, they can't because God is the one ruler. And just in case we don't get that, notice it goes on to say he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There is none higher than God. I think when we're in the midst of trial, that is the greatest perspective that we can have. God has a plan and a purpose that is unfolding. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This doesn't surprise God. God is infinitely able to get us through. I love that perspective, and we need to remember that. Notice verse 16. Verse 16 goes on to say, who lives in unapproachable light. God is in purity. Light reveals evil and the hidden things. Light dispels darkness. It is the opposite of darkness, and that is who God is. But aren't you thankful that although he dwells in unapproachable light, Because of Jesus Christ, we can approach God. I love what Paul was saying to the Roman ruler in Acts chapter 26. He was giving his testimony, and he said, I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
turn them from darkness to light. Although God lives in unapproachable light, because of Jesus, we have a relationship with this God. Look at the next statement. Who no one has seen or can see. Again, this is talking about the transcendence of God. You know, there's a tendency that we as human beings have to try and get more comfortable with God. We bring Him down on a level to where we can kind of wrap our our minds and, and, and our hands around who God is. God is transcendent. What that means is He is so far above what we can think or imagine. We have glimpses of who God is because of His revelation but we don't know all of his magnificence and glory. While we know him as our father, we can't know all of the nuances and truths and deep things of God. Do you think that one volume could contribute all of that revelation about who God is? He's infinite. Of course there's no way that this can contain every aspect of who God is. We have a glimpse We have a picture, but that's all. God is one that can't be perceived in every way. No one can. And let me tell you this. As we lay hold of eternal life and we experience eternal life, you know what I think we'll be doing in eternity? Discovering more and more about God. Every day will be a fresh perspective on some truth about God. And here's the beauty. There won't be sin to cloud our minds. We'll be able to know him in a deeper and fuller way. This is the God that we serve. Look at the final statement. To him be glory, or excuse me, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. We are to honor our God. We are to honor him with complete fullness. We are to honor him and give our all to him in seeking to serve him because of who he is. That's the truth of this passage. Now listen, our giving our all to God is something that we grow in. I've been walking with God for 52 years. Accepted the Lord when I was about seven years old, six years old. And I'm still learning things that I'm turning over to him learning things about God, learning things about myself. And I hope to continue that until the day I die. At no point on this side of glory do we arrive. But here's what we do need to understand. We serve an awesome God who's worthy of our honor. We serve a God who is incomprehensible. I can't begin to wrap my brain about who God is. I have the privilege of serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you do too. So my encouragement to you, as you strive towards steadfastness, it's not about how people view you. It's not about the things that you're recognized or patted on the back for here. We serve an unbelievable God. That's the focal point. Don't get distracted by the things that can derail you and entrap you. Remain faithful to the God who is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text.
Thank you for the reminder that it is to each one of us. 